Hello, and welcome to the Emotion Lab. We're taking a deep dive into what makes the combination of immersive technologies and Emotion AI so exciting. This is through a combination of interviews with experts in academia, healthcare, and technology. And I'm your host, Dr. Charles Nduka. So this week, we're joined by Professor Andrew Thompson, who is a researcher currently based at Origin, part of the University of Melbourne in Australia, uh, but previously at the University of Warwick in the UK. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks, Charles. Nice to be here. So I uh, found you via the work you were doing on VR, but perhaps you can tell us a little bit more about your background in terms of what you do clinically. Yeah, thanks, Charles. I'm, um, my background is as a um, psychiatrist, so I've uh, trained as a psychiatrist and I specialise in youth psychiatry. So the institute I work in in Melbourne is a um, youth psychiatry clinical research institute. So I'm a consultant psychiatrist and I practice in that institute, but I also have an um, academic position at uh, the Institute and the University of Melbourne. And my research interests are around youth mental health, but often about prevention and getting in early because it's um, one of the sort of areas uh, that we're, we're very interested in about sort of early intervention and, and, and picking and, and intervening as early as possible with, with, with young people. I mean, it's, it's such an important topic and COVID has really highlighted the, the increase in mental health issues amongst young people, especially. What, what areas are particularly of interest to you? I know that you focus, I think, on psychosis. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's, that's been my most of, of the time research has been on either sort of people who are just experiencing their first episode of psychosis. So, so their the first uh, phase of, an, of, of their illness, they've just presented to services and often a little bit before that. So looking for um, risk factors and things that might be predictive and what you can do potentially in that area to um, change uh, a course or, or sort of deliver interventions as, as early as possible. Because often what happens, as, as you might know, is that things are left uh, a little late and not always, but often, you know, some of the, the, the problems and the damage has already been done. So the, the, the importance of getting in early um, and we know that actually if you catch things early and you treat things early, the, the outcomes are, uh, are better. So. For listeners who aren't aware of psychosis, what it means, how it's diagnosed and how it presents, perhaps you can give a, a bit of a, a quick summary. Yeah, thanks, Charles. Um, yeah, so what we mean by psychosis is, is really sort of encapsulated by a cluster of, of symptoms. So the first set of symptoms is hallucinations, so hearing or seeing things that aren't there. Then delusions, which are sort of false false fixed beliefs uh, and then disordered thought so disordered thinking and speech so that cluster itself is is you know what we mean by psychosis and then um, from that there are a number of sort of more specific diagnoses that that, that would be under that umbrella such as, as schizophrenia uh, bipolar disorder um, substance induced psychosis so so there's a sort of broader umbrella and then there's a number of um, uh, specific diagnostic categories you know in terms of uh, di diagnosis uh, it's done uh, primarily by um, by interview and by clinical skills and by eliciting those phenomena which is relatively reliable but does obviously has it have its problems so it's not like a number of er other areas in medicine where there's a test to say that you have 
this diagnosis or that diagnosis. It's um, done through, through, through those means. Great. And, and you mentioned there being sort of drug-induced and so some, some causative factors. Are there any other uh, recognised risk factors or predisposing factors for psychosis? Yeah, there are a number of, um, of known factors. I think it's a very, um, like a number of the, the psychiatric disorders that are very multifactorial. So there's clearly a genetic basis for a number of the disorders. There are social and sort of environmental factors, and they all contribute. There's no one that, that, that hugely stands out, but, you know, um, uh, you, we mentioned substance use, so um, cannabis use and other substances. Uh, environmental trauma um, and other specific environmental factors that we think might might be important um, in a in a developmental uh, so often we we, we talk about a, a developmental trajectory and there are a number of possible things throughout that developmental trajectory and then there's a number of possible triggers not always stress but often there's a a, a stressful life event or something that is can be conceived as a as a trigger to the start of of, of an illness. So you know, sort of as I said, it's the the multifactorial na- nature of it is is uh, that makes it difficult to then predict. You know, who might be more at risk. I have my own personal interest in, in this because my sister, who's just over a year older than me, she uh, started hearing voices at around age twelve, shortly after starting secondary school. Yeah, it, a horrendous uh, condition, and, and I. I yeah, it's one of the reasons why I have a particular interest in in the condition because, you know, she definitely had some some childhood related trauma. T- tell me about the work that's currently being done in terms of prevention. Then, thank you for that, Charles. I'm, I'm, if I might say, I think you know that, that's obviously one of the reasons for the early intervention approach is the is the sort of collateral trauma of actually um, having an illness and then being treated, which I think. You know, obviously, um, in certain certain places in the nineteen eighties and nineties, I think this that was the um, one of the catalysts for this movement of saying, you know, we need to treat people early and well. Um, so that if it's okay to highlight that, I think um, obviously, um, thank you for sharing that about your your sister. But so you you asking about the preventative approaches coming off the back of this sort of idea that we would intervene as, a, as a early um, and treat things as, as well and, and, un, and understand also the sort of developmental tra- trajectory of, 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 of illnesses because most of the time um, illnesses like schizophrenia will start in their early 20s um, so that's the sort of peak time when people are doing and moving on and either leaving school or going to university or getting jobs but even moving further back, knowing that these that the, the young people will have things beforehand, it's a, a, a term that's used in other other areas of medicine. It's used in 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 psychosis of a prodrome, so it's a sort of period of non-specific symptoms that occur before the full disorder. And that prodrome for psychosis can last a number of years, and and maybe as you've highlighted, sometimes has you know, social de- decline and other things that actually come first, depression, anxiety, that are maybe a more um, non-specific, And then maybe there's the development of some more of these um, psychotic symptoms. What people have been interested in, and we've been interested in is trying to work out, can we predict and can we actually firstly describe it as a, as a distinct sort of period of beforehand? And then if we can describe it, and it's predictive, can we do something in that period and the preventative stuff? It, I think we got pretty good at being able to describe that 
that period based on sort of early symptoms, so early symptoms of, you know, mild paranoia or voices. And we've been able to sort of get a what's called an at-risk mental state, which is a sort of, uh, uh, we can use a, a, a diagnostic interview to say, well, this person might be having, having those problems. And then the next stage is actually the preventative measures. So there's been a number of trials looking at various different interventions, and they started off with, um, with medications, and then they sort of moved more on to, to, to talking therapies and a sort of what's so-called nutraceuticals, so things like fish oil. So basically people thought this because you couldn't predict everybody that was going to develop psychosis, then, then giving people um, medications wasn't the right, clearly wasn't the right thing to do. Um, and you know, benign but but effective treatments was what 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 people um, were uh, considering. So that's sort of where where the fields moved to to to, to using those. So as a different types of therapy, so sort of therapies called cognitive behavioural therapy or um, intervening in that. Um, and you know, we're we're quite interested ourselves in the sort of um, social therapies that are related to those cognitive therapies. So as I said even before somebody's psychosis starts, they've, they've often had quite a drop in their um, social functioning. So often something's happened, that they've dropped out of school or something's happened and trying to um, ameliorate and work with that early is, is, is really important as well. So that's one area we've um, concentrated on. Well, that leads nicely onto the work you've done uh, using virtual worlds as a, as a model for uh, improving or at least uh, helping to manage uh, psychosis. Could you tell us a bit about that that project? That's fascinating. Yeah, that that was a project that came out of a a, a trial that we did, a pilot trial that we did over, back back in in when I was recent uh, previously in Australia, where we we ran a a, a group intervention that was based on some of those uh, and trying to improve some of those social functioning in in early, in early psychosis, and it was around this concept called social cognition that your um, listeners might may or may know about, but it, it was really things like um, being able to take perspective, um, being able to recognise emotions in other people and spot emotions and then um, adapt to those emotions, jumping to conclusions in certain situations and making, uh, having bio, possible biased decisions about things. So trying to change and, and adapt those things and, and, and also a concept you know, theory of mind, which is really essentially just putting yourself in somebody else's shoes or thinking, understanding what somebody else is thinking. So we ran that um, as a group and that we found that people would come, but the whole concept of it being a group for young people with early psychosis was really quite difficult. And so we couldn't get people to come. Um, when they did come, they did well, but they, they we couldn't get them to come. And we were thinking of ways of how we could engage and get people in. And um, a colleague of mine said, well, how about looking at online or virtual uh, approaches to doing that? Um, so we pursued that and we found um, a couple of researchers in um, Imperial College who, who designed these virtual worlds. So they were computer-based programs with, with avatars, so people that would represent you and... Um, you could use that and you could go into this virtual world and you could then deliver, um, they're often used by universities or other institutions, but you could deliver group work and you could deliver therapy and you could do other things. So it started us on that. 
journey of trying to see whether we could do that. And um, it was a fasc- fascinating journey because we, we, we worked with young people with, who'd had experienced illness before. That was probably the most fascinating bit. Um, and we worked with a designer who designed this wonderful virtual world and it looked wonderful and relaxing. And, um, and the young people came in and said, no, we don't want that. We want um, urban landscapes and therapy rooms and we want something completely different. So we re- completely redesigned the, the world. Um, and then we ran the group and we managed to get a, a number of people um, through, the, through the group um, uh, and ran a, a structured therapy, which was, which was quite challenging to do, but we managed to do it and um, uh, found that actually was, it, it got uh, similar outcomes to the face-to-face group. Um, but we were, we, what we did is we managed to get more people who were in the early psychosis program through the program. So we got far more consents and recruitments and they found it um, much easier to come to, basically. Uh, so that's, that, that was the start of that, of that process. I mean, that's, that's so interesting because, I, you know, I'm hearing parallels across a number of different areas of, of psychology and psychiatry. The, the treatment uh, uh, can be effective, but sometimes, as in group therapy, for example, but sometimes the treatment itself can lead to side effects. So actually getting to a therapy session, if you have uh, some degrees of social anxiety, for example, or, or fear of interactions, it could mean having to travel on an underground uh, tube uh, train or, or, or traverse and, and meet a variety of people to actually get to the session itself. It's, it's almost as if the talking therapy, that, that's the equivalent of, of the side effects uh, in the same way that you'd have side effects of, of uh, conventional medications. And also I'm hearing crossovers between the issues that people with psychosis have with uh, some of the issues that people with, with, for example, autism have in terms of uh, social interaction, recognition of emotions, uh, and having an opportunity to, to practice those interactions in a safe space. Yeah, absolutely. There's that, that, certainly that, that social cognition side there is overlaps in, in a number of disorders, but as you say, autism is the classic um, one where uh, theory of mind is often more... Um, uh, there's there are more problems there, and you're absolutely spot on. I think the expectation, and that's the general um, uh, system, is that young people will be able to come and sit in a room with lots of other people and do group therapy, where it's a completely alien concept. And and as you, you know, say, get, even getting there on public transport is very difficult. So this was, it was really also the idea that it's not going to replace potentially a one-to-one therapy or a. Or, or sort of a human interaction, but it was going to be a and a way of engaging and a, and a stepping stone. Um, and not not everybody. There's a number of obviously concepts of of people find it easier in in virtual or sometimes online environments as well. This sort of online disinhibition to uh, to say to be there and to and to say things where they'd find it incredibly anxiety provoking to be in a group. Um, often young young men, but not not always. But it, it it was certainly it's certainly beneficial for that. And they could just sit in the corner, and they could sit there with their avatar, and um, and then they slowly um, you know came into the group and were um, were more engaged. Yeah, I know. I can I can I can totally see how that that is beneficial, especially for young people. Using digital technologies is often something that they are naturally attuned to and feel comfortable with. And I, and I guess also one of the things that a lot of young people, especially uh, teenagers, especially 
uh, feel self-conscious about is around their appearance. And so abstracting away that element of uh, potentially anxiety-inducing um, stimulus you know, could be really beneficial by, by not having that element uh, part, of the, part of the solution. So you're able to embody yourself in, in a different way. Yeah, and that, that was interesting that people wanted to embody themselves in very different ways. And so the program that we used, which was a sort of existing program, um, had certain set avatars and people wanted different things. They wanted to, you know, uh, so so that, that, that itself was interesting. And that's, and we may talk about it later, but that's led us to developing our own program, which we're in the process of doing, that might have, you know, incorporate the features that the young people have said are most important. And that was one of them, certainly, you know, I want to be, I want to show myself as this, or I want to be different in, in this way. Tell us a bit about that program. Were you using Second Life in your previous one or something similar? Yes, it was Second Life. So um, if people are not aware of Second Life, it's been around for, I think, probably over 12, 12 years. It's only been around for a while, um, an established program um, in the States. And essentially what you do is you bar, you sort of rent a, a plot of land and then you build on a plot of land, which is... Um, in our instance, was was secure and password protected, so we obviously were worried about um, uh, the safety of, of of the young people and the and the, the privacy. Um, but it was through the Second Life platform, so we couldn't we could change certain things, but we couldn't there's certain things we we couldn't do. And the young people said, "Well, we would like this, or this was most important," um, and that's led us to sort of. Uh, thinking that we would develop our own platform that, that incorporates those major and the, the main things that, that, that they want and also that we can be cognizant about all of the safety issues and all of the, the data protection issues, which I think are really important. Great. Well, I look forward to hearing about that. Is that close to completion or is that something that's still being very much worked on? Uh, that was just something we've got funding for, actually, Charles. So we've, we, we've, so we're just sort of starting that 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 journey again and, and what we were able to which was which was really interesting during the covid lockdown over here in in australia which was um quite a long lockdown um we were able to um run some of the groups again within the within the clinical service so not in the context of a clinical trial but but deliver them through our own group program uh, to people so we learned quite a lot from from that um and doing it in different ways, so not a structured group, so, so much of a structured group, we got some peer workers to deliver their own group. Um, so um, it was it was very useful, and, and I was always very keen, because being a clinical academic, to, to use these things um, where they can be used. So it's sort of augmented the Zoom or whatever platform you people would use mm -hmm. online groups um but we could do that and we, we were able to deliver that to young people during covid which was which was um, good yeah i mean one of the beneficial uh, side effects of this terrible pandemic has been really accelerating and highlighting some of the things that digital technologies can offer to healthcare certainly i've seen it in my clinical practice using uh, teleconferencing uh, we run as part of my work with patients with facial paralysis who often experience social anxiety, uh, running running uh, remote support groups, which has been really helpful for those who, who live a long way away from the hospital. Um, it's been really, really beneficial. And um, yeah, I can see how, you know, especially in a country like Australia, being able to bring people together without them having to jump on the plane to, to travel to, to a clinic is beneficial. 
One of the areas that I thought was really interesting around the research in psychosis was the work that was done, I think it was at King's or UCL, on, on hallucinations using um, embodying avatars. Um, I don't know much about that work, but perhaps could you tell me a bit about that in a theoretical basis? Yeah, I know. I haven't been involved in, in that work, Charles, but I know a little bit about it because some of our other work, other than virtual worlds, is is actually in what people would probably know as, as standard virtual reality using headsets and stuff. Um, but the Avatar work is 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 fascinating. It's um, so it's run out of King's College. Um, I think Philippa Garrity and Tom Craig lead the project, or amongst others. And what they've done, so it's not virtual reality per se, but what they've done is they've, for people who have um, sort of chronic voices, so they have voices that are often pretty, you know, distressing, really horrible things to have to, to deal with. They've, what they've done is they've created a program where the, the voice is sort of embodied as a, as a face. And the face um, is controlled or the, 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 um, the movements of the face are controlled by a therapist. So it looks like the, 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 the face is, sort of, is, is speaking to you. Um, and the, 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 the person that's a participant it has to, it, to design that and design the voice and design the sort of things that that face would, would be saying on the basis of what they're actually hearing. Um, and so the the participant would have a conversation with the voice and then would learn techniques about how to uh, control, dismiss um, and um, uh, challenge some of the things the voices, some of the, the distressing things the voices were was, was saying. Um, and they've actually on a, um, a pilot trial found that really quite successful. And I think they're, they're, they're launched, they've launched a, a larger trial that looks to see whether um, that in a in a larger in a big randomized control trial is is going to be effective in treating the voices essentially. So that's a you know that's one particular really interesting area um, in psychosis that that um, you know virtual um, therapists are being used. That's fascinating. The the idea of being able to take something that's in somebody's head, making it real or at least virtually real on a screen embodying it in a personality and then allowing them now to deal with that personality. That sounds fascinating. If I think back to my sister and she had, her character was called Gloria and, and used to say you know, horrible things. It's all, if you could try to imagine having you know, your worst enemy in your head, criticizing you, observing, commenting on everything, everything that you do um, in, in the most horrendous ways and you can't escape from it. And so by taking it outside the person's head, and uh, making it external, externalizing it, and, and then being able to challenge those those comments and thoughts, and I, I think it's it's a fascinating area of research, and I really look forward to seeing how that develops forward. What are the other areas that you're interested in in terms of uh, use of certainly digital therapies and mental health? Yeah, um, so the the area that we we're, we're developing, Charles, or, along with the virtual worlds, are is, is the more sort of standard. Um, or what people would say standard virtual reality approaches using headsets. Um, and we're very interested in using sort of mobile devices and looking at ways to personalize things a bit more. So the, the problem often with virtual reality research is it's sort of very lab-based and, and now we have an opportunity with the devices being cheaper and more mobile to, for people to use them within, within the clinics. So we, we're, and the standard way, um, 
of those of, of using virtual reality with headsets in in psychosis has been about all about exposure so you can put somebody in a in an environment that's controlled and you can change parameters and you can do things to expose people to things that they would be um, they would find uh, difficult or um, so and then you can do the therapy within within that controlled setting so when I talked about cognitive behavioral therapy um, one of the things that people do is they have so-called safety behaviors where they 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 will do things to avoid being exposed to a particular thing that they find really challenging and so with with VR you can gently um, try and work with some of those those behaviors so that's sort of the more standard way of using of using VR but we I guess we're, we're also more interested in some of the newer therapies that people are, are using so things like mindfulness and um, there's a therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy um, that are they're so-called called third wave therapies, but they're different approaches to the standard um, cognitive behavioural therapy. And um, you can use VR in those settings as well to be able to um, uh, sort of put people in situations, again, that are controlled and hopefully also can be personalised. So some, somebody might struggle in a supermarket I and mean, they might be fine somewhere else. Somebody might struggle in a, in a particular type of environment. Um, and I, I would hope maybe that's the way that VR is going, that we're able to, to do that rather than use these standard um, paradigms that um, they've obviously been used for, for reasons because it's very expensive to, you know, to develop these paradigms. But you, you mentioned about the tube train and the tube train is one of the, the paradigms that, that's been used for paranoia before. Um, which is a, probably a great place to, you know, to, to use, but most of the people I see wouldn't ever even get on a tube train. So, or, or they don't live in London, so they wouldn't have that, um, you know, personalized environment. It's, it's still a great environment to, 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 to think about, but, um, you know, sort of making it, making it real for, for particular people. Um, so that's what we're doing across the sort of youth mental health spectrum. So we're also, you know, we're obviously interested in things like psychosis, um, but, but, um, uh, um, other other diagnoses like you know, depression and anxiety. Fascinating. You know, I see the potential for VR for mental health as being just immense. You know, having seen the, the system as as currently was and the the consequences of conventional therapies, certainly uh, some of the older drug based therapies, and and being able to get in early on and enabling people to improve as you say, in a personalized way, as headsets, as devices become smaller and cheaper to be able to practice uh, in the comfort of their own home, perhaps with, with guidance by a virtual therapist. It, 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 clearly, it's going to be a game changer. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think it's, it's, it's interesting with, uh, again, going back to the COVID, um, the shift of, of how we've clearly all shifted to using um, telehealth or telemedicine as a, as a way of... of of delivering healthcare, we sort of shifted the other bits a little bit, but it's the time to sort of say, well, you know, I'd like to be able to use this within a clinical setting. And you have a, a therapist that says, okay, well, you know, one of the things we can do here is we can adapt and we can use the headset. Why don't you try that? Here's a personalized program for you. So it becomes uh, embedded within a healthcare setting rather than a sort of a research um 
you know, just a research tool, really. Um, and I think services have got quite a long way to go, but the, the experience of COVID has said that people can pivot and shift quite quickly to to um, to something different. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing that we have is a bit of data to say that that young people, not everybody, but young a number of young people have preferred certain aspects of the the tech-based um, approaches that they've been given and they want to keep them. Um, so it's sort of getting this sort of mixed um, approach that in, you know, in actually uh, embraces technology within the, the treatment. Absolutely. I th- yeah, I think the thing to emphasise is I often get a bit of pushback from people saying, well, it's not for everybody. Maybe people want to have a face-to-face interaction. And I, I totally agree. There should be a whole suite of options available to people. But by enabling those who do prefer digital therapies to access them, it then frees up that, that very valuable therapist time to be able to devote to those who either can't or, or won't or don't like to, to do things virtually. And that's the key thing, isn't it? It's just trying to uh, improve resource utilization because obviously mental health professional time and space is, is limited. Andrew, that was an, a really, really interesting. Uh, we've run out of time, but um, is there anything that re- uh, listeners could, could find online about you and the work you're doing? Yeah, thanks, Charles. They could have a look, I guess, at our um, research institute that's doing some interesting um, work on youth mental health in general, and that's called Origin. So I, I believe the website is www.origin.org.au. Um, so it's a clinical institute as well as a, a research institute, and I have um, uh, a, a page there. But it, it, it's interesting, and there, there are lots of different resources there that cover the whole um, gamut of um of youth mental health interven- interventions. And I also, um, we're part of uh, a part of that institution called Origin Digital. So um, we're with colleagues who are doing um, a sort of a number of different technological interventions, smart, smart um, smartphone apps, um, sort of uh, sort of online social therapy and, and various various different approaches to using technology. So I'm sure your um, listeners might be interested to look at that. So that's called Origin Digital and that's part of um, that institute. Perfect. Well, I'll put links to those in the show notes uh, or via the, the blog. Thanks so much for your time. That was really, really interesting. And uh, I look forward to hearing an update uh, in future. Thanks very much for having me, Charles. Great. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Emotion Lab. If you're enjoying it, please remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And do head over to the description of this episode and follow us on social media to be notified when a new episode is launching.